The Bible reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gordon. Uh, just before I pray, uh, I am conscious that we do have a disproportionate number of small people in this bottom left-hand uh, segment. I know your child has been baptized and therefore should never be disobedient ever again. <laughs> but if they, if they do happen to give you any hassles, we do have um, speakers on the corridors outside. So you can go out and hear the sermon in some comfort. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, again, we want to give you grateful thanks for this morning's proceedings, um, just for the baptism and the joy that that puts in our hearts. Uh, Father, we, we come now to, to be formed and changed and challenged and comforted and refreshed by your word. For that to happen, Lord, we, we need your spirit to give us soft hearts, to give us ears to hear, to give us eyes to see. Uh, we can't do it in and of ourselves. So we come in our weakness and in our complete inability to, to meet with you, and we plead that you would meet with us. In Jesus' name, we can only ask these things. Amen. Clive White was a champion trout fisherman. He appeared on the cover of Trout Fisherman magazine seven times in the 1990s. I know you have a subscription. You would have seen him. 
he held the record for the largest rainbow trout ever caught in Britain. And then he wrote this letter to the secretary of the British Fish Record Committee. Such a thing actually exists. Dear Mr. Rowe, I would like to take this opportunity to withdraw my claim to the BFRC in connection with the record rainbow trout. The record in question was the current British record rainbow trout caught at Diva Springs Trout Fishery on the 4th of April 1995. I did not catch the fish. It was all set up to look like there, would, there was a new British record. The fish wasn't even stocked into the lake. It was actually placed in a bag next to the lake, all ready for me to claim. I am very sorry and deeply regret what I have done, but I cannot live a lie anymore, as it has destroyed my marriage and very nearly destroyed me. As a result, I have given up fishing altogether. Now, I know that fishermen are notorious. The story won't shock you. How big was it? It was, it was this big, right? But just hear this. Clive White's guilt over cheating in a fishing contest destroyed his marriage, nearly destroyed the man himself, and meant that he had to turn his back on his life's passion. Of course, there are far more serious examples of the power of guilt in our lives. Albert Speer was the production genius behind the Nazi war machine. He was actually the only one of the Nuremberg trialists who ever admitted his guilt. He served two decades in prison for his crimes. And then this is what he said in an interview years after he was released. This is what he said. I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving all of that time as a punishment. But I can't do it. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime. And I cannot get rid of it. Here at home, something similar must be true. Some people won a legal amnesty at the TRC, but an amnesty of the conscience is a whole different thing, isn't it? They never went to jail, but do they have peace? And whatever we may think about white guilt... As a psychological phenomenon, it exists. The research shows that many white people live with guilt over their whiteness. Whatever we think about it, we have to acknowledge that the thing exists. White guilt exists. So whether we're talking about a cheating fisherman or a Nazi sympathizer or race relations here in South Africa, guilt is something that has enormous power over us all. It plagues us as individuals. It plagues us as a society. Guilt looms large in our lives. So large that Sigmund Freud called it the most important problem in the development of civilization. Not climate change. Guilt. Now, how do we deal with this problem called guilt? We're going to have a look at how the West has dealt with it because, of course, for better or for worse, the West is a massive cultural influencer globally, and it's impacted on how we, we deal with it. So we'll have a look at how the West dealt with it. Nietzsche argued that if you get rid of God, you get rid of guilt. 
So what he did is he, he studied the cultures of the world, he studied their, their development over history, and he concluded that morality is rooted in a feeling of indebtedness to our ancestors. So over time, this indebtedness to ancestors evolves into a fearful reverence for ancestors, and finally, into a fear for the transcendent, all-powerful God of the Bible. All of our guilt and shame stems from living under the illusion of this God who demands a moral life from us. It follows that if you overthrow the illusion of God, you overthrow the illusion of morality. And if you overthrow morality, you overthrow the guilt feelings associated with falling short of that morality. Are you following the argument? He's basically saying this, no God, no guilt. Of course, that's not how it's all panned out, has it? Because Western culture for 200 years has been doing its level best to get rid of God. But guilt is still alive and well. Freud took the baton from Nietzsche. And as I said earlier, he saw guilt as the biggest problem facing all of civilization. So what was his answer? His answer was to redefine the problem. He moved guilt from the domain, the space of moral justice, how we relate to each other objectively. And he put it in the space of private health. How do I feel about myself? He moved it from being a collective problem to being an intensely individual problem. He reduced guilt to a subjective feeling. Forget about the objective facts. How do you feel? A negative emotion that can be managed only through psychotherapy. So how has the West tried to deal with guilt? Two strategies. Eliminate God or redefine guilt. Two Western strategies for dealing with guilt. And of course, because of the influence of the West over the past 200 years, we know those strategies well. There's a third strategy that we all of us know well. The rush to victimhood. The rush to victimhood. This one is as old as Adam himself. You'll remember Adam. He blamed God for giving him the wife who gave him the fruit that fell into his mouth and then slipped down his digestive tract. Adam was a victim of God's goodness to him. Poor Adam. And since Adam, everybody wants to be the victim. We see it all around us all the time. You see it in little children. Siblings who've had a fight. It wasn't me, it, was my, it wasn't my fault, it was him. He started it. In other words, I'm the victim here. Don't you see it? You see it in politics. Parties on all ends of the spectrum, falling over themselves to woo voters with the message, you are the real victim here. You see it in marriage counseling. Or at least those of us involved in marriage counseling see it. When... The counseling degenerates into a contest over what he or she did to me. You know, I think of the last 10 disputes that I've had with other people, and it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. In every single case, I was the victim. You know, it's astonishing how guilty other people can be. None of this... And please hear me, none of this is to downplay or discredit the experience of genuine victims. It's just to say that there's a lot of counterfeit or exaggerated victimhood around us. And in fact, that's the deepest insult to true victims. 
But the question is why? We love playing the victim, all of us. But why? Because it exonerates us. It deals with our guilt by ruling out the possibility of guilt. Per definition, you remember, if, if you're a victim, you are innocent. Per definition. That's what it means to be a victim. And in a world where God is dead, or just an illusion to be overcome, if I've got nowhere else to go with my guilt, one way to deal with it is to identify as the victim or with the victim. Victims are innocent. It's a self-justification strategy. It's a strategy for dealing with our guilt. So there are just three examples of strategies in the wider culture. Of course, there's, there's so many others. How do we deal with our guilt? We can self-medicate. We can eat. We can shop. We can live in denial. We can punish ourselves with pain. We can distract ourselves with pleasure. We can work ourselves to the bone. All of it in an effort to deal with our guilt, to cleanse our consciences. What I'm saying is this. In our culture, in our own lives, guilt is a major problem, and all of us have strategies for dealing with that guilt. Not somebody else, you and me. Those who read the letter to the Hebrews for the first time also recognized this problem of guilt, and they also had a strategy for dealing with it. They dealt with it in terms of the old covenant. And so their strategy was, in fact, far superior to any of ours because it was originally ordained by God. Even so, our writer wants to challenge them and show them that there's a better way. And as usual, he does it by comparing the two, our strategy for guilt relief and God's strategy, and he compares them. The chapter opens with a description of the tabernacle. Uh, under the old covenant, the tabernacle was just the meeting place for God and his people and, until the temple was built. So it was kind of a, a mobile temple, if you like. And what it was was like a, a Russian doll of tented chambers. So you know a Russian doll, you go bigger, then smaller, then smaller, then smaller. It was like that with the tabernacle. A bigger tent with more open access. And as you went in, the tent would become smaller and the access more restricted. Then Hebrews 9 verse 1, our writer says to us, Even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And he goes on to describe the layout and the furniture of this earthly place, the tabernacle. He, he ignores the outer court where every Israelite had access. He starts with the holy place. He describes the furniture. He mentions the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. And then he moves deeper inside behind the second curtain into the most holy place. And this time he mentions the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark of the Covenant, the manna, Aaron's staff, tablets of the Sinai Covenant. And above the ark are the cherubim and the mercy seat. He shows in very few words the great dignity and beauty of this old covenant arrangement. But he's anxious to move on. You see that. He mentions all of this. He sort of rattles it off. And then he says, of these, these things we cannot speak now in detail. So let's not. In verses 6 and 7, he just talks about priest and high priest and their duties as it relates to the tabernacle. And finally, in verse 8, he gets to the point, and he tells us why he's saying all of this. Look at verse 8. By this, the holy, by this, these tabernacle arrangements, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. 
In other words, he's saying that by the design of the tabernacle itself, the way it's designed, it is designed to show that it was never intended to be a final solution to the problem of guilt. It was always intended to be a temporary solution to a marred conscience, to a burdened conscience. The tabernacle is about restriction, not access. In the verses that follow, he, he, he fleshes all of this out. He gives us a detailed critique of these old covenant arrangements. And he says to the Hebrews that as dignified as they were, they remain ineffective, temporary, external. Okay, so let's have a look. The old covenant arrangements are ineffective. Verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The tabernacle sacrificial system doesn't work because it doesn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, it doesn't deal with this problem of guilt. And so it blocks the way to free worship, free access to God. How do we know? Well, because access to God is restricted. It's mediated through priests who can only go so far and only at certain times of the year and only after they've offered certain sacrifices over and over and over again. In other words, the system doesn't work. It doesn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We stop to think about it. That's also true of our cultural strategies, isn't it? Our own strategies for guilt relief. They suffer the same shortcomings. Think about therapy with me. Therapy is mediated through a psychologist. You have to keep going back. You have to keep offering the same sacrifice, financial sacrifice, over and over and over again. Now, just to be clear, I'm not trashing therapy. We have a counseling center here at the church. Therapy has its place. What I'm doing is pointing out its limits. If therapy helps with feelings of guilt, and so often it does, the writer to the Hebrews is reminding us that guilt is about more than our feelings. With respect to Sigmund Freud, guilt is about more than our feelings. Guilt is about our relationship with God. And that makes all the difference. As we attempt to deal with our guilt, we are more than patients coming to a therapist with disordered feelings. We are worshippers coming to our Creator with all the wrong we have thought and said and done. We, the guilty, are worshippers. We're not just patients. We are worshippers. And so this is what King David does with his guilt. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He approaches his creator with his guilt as a worshiper. Secondly, now the first point we're making is that the old covenant, the old tabernacle arrangements didn't work. They weren't effective because they couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Secondly, the old covenant arrangements only operate at the external level. 
Verse 9 again, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The old covenant arrangements could change behavior, but they could do nothing about the heart. Food and drink and washing and regulations can do nothing to cleanse the soul or pacify the conscience. That's why baptism remains a symbol, a profound symbol, but a symbol of a much deeper spiritual reality. Food and drink and washing and regulations, they can't purify the conscience. They can only point in that direction. Compare external regulations to what David asks for in Psalm 51. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David recognizes that taking a shower after he slept with Bathsheba is just not enough. He recognizes that the blood of a bull does nothing to change the order he gave, the order that Bathsheba's husband Uriah stand in the front line of the battle and be left there, isolated. The order he gave to Uriah's comrades, to his brothers in arms, that they should abandon him to death. What difference does the blood of a goat make to that? It does nothing to repay Uriah's loyalty. It does nothing to atone for David's sin. It does nothing to ensure that it won't happen again. Nothing. It's only on the outside. And again, this is true of our guilt relief strategies. They're on the outside. They have more to do with relieving our shame than addressing our guilt. We are much more concerned about getting caught than what we are about what it is we've actually done. Much more concerned about getting caught than what it is we've actually done. Much more concerned about reputation than we are about righteousness. Our guilt strategies deal with the feelings and they're an attempt to make us look better to others but they don't deal with the heart. And of course God sees the heart. The problem with the old covenant regulations is that they were ineffective and they were external. And so it's no surprise, thirdly, that they anticipated something greater. Verse 10 speaks about the old covenant provisions as regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Simple point. These arrangements were ineffective and external. The reason they had any value is that they pointed forward to something that was effective and internal. Whatever that is, we need it. Just like the Hebrews needed it. And the writer gives it to us in verse 11. Listen closely. But when Christ appeared, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ, this is verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ makes all the difference. Jesus is better. We've said it over and over and over again because the writer to the Hebrews says it over and over and over again. Jesus is better. His covenant ushers in something that is effective, internal, and in the here and now. It's effective, internal, and it's in the here and now. The sacrifice of Christ is effective. It works. Where the old covenant arrangements had to be repeated over and over and over again, his was final. Verse 12, he entered once. Once. Once is all it took. Where the old covenant arrangements had hierarchies of access, the access he won is universal. Verse 12 again, he entered once for all. For all. No more Russian dolls of access. No more priest and high priest. Now we all have the freedom, the wonderful inexpressibly joyous freedom of approaching the throne of grace with confidence. All of us. Where the old covenant arrangements covered you until your next sin, Christ secures for us an eternal redemption. Verse 12. The sacrifice of Christ works. It is final. It is universal. It is eternal because... It's a sacrifice in his own blood. The blood of an animal can do nothing about your guilt. But the blood of Christ is human blood. And it's not just any human blood. It's the blood of the new humanity. It's the blood of the new Adam. Christ is the true victim in the sense that he is the only one who is perfectly innocent. His blood isn't stained by sin. His blood is pure. Now think with me about all of our sin and guilt. That is not a thought that you can hold in your mind for very long. It will destroy you. It will crush you. Think about the horrors of human sin and guilt. And now remember David. Ultimately, all of that sin in all of its vile ugliness is against God. When you offend an infinite being, you cause infinite offense. Your debt is infinite. And so you need something of infinite value to repay that debt. You need the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus will be enough. And it is enough. He is a worthy sacrifice. His sacrifice is effective. Secondly, his covenant is internal. It's internal. Look at the logic of verse 13 and 14 with me again. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences? If the old 
covenant arrangements were effected in a limited superficial way as a sign, how much more effective is the blood of Christ? That's the logic. The perfect sacrifice was offered. Our debt of guilt has been paid. The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ so that his sacrifice becomes our sacrifice. And hear this, his pure conscience, his perfectly pure conscience becomes ours. His conscience was perfectly free. And so now the conscience of any worshiper can be perfected in that way. Complete freedom and transparency before God. Anyone in Christ can enter the most holy presence of God without fear because the perfect sacrifice has been offered. David's prayer has been answered. God has dealt with our sin at the root. He has given humanity a new heart. What heart is that? It's the heart of Christ. We're no longer just washing the skin. He has purified the conscience, and I hope you see the chasm between those two things. It's an unbreachable chasm between merely washing the skin and having our consciences purified. He's cleansed us from the inside out, and so the writer can write with conviction, the good things have now come. The time of reformation has arrived in the person of Christ. Thirdly, the new covenant is in the here and now. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places. We are no longer in the age of signs anticipating the real thing, waiting for the real thing. We're no longer dealing with earthly tents and regulations that are just a copy of the heavenly reality. In Christ we have real access to the living God in the here and now. And that actually throws us back to the furniture in the tabernacle. I just want to show you something. Because in each case, the piece of furniture, that piece of furniture was a sign pointing us to what we have in Jesus. In the here and now. So let's take the lamp. You remember when God created the earth, he created the sun to rule by day and the moon to rule by night. Here's the lamp. The lamp and its light represent the gracious ruling presence of God in our lives. Light comes to us from the outside, from far away, but it permeates every mundane aspect of our 24-7 lives. Just like the faraway God who comes close to us in Christ with his gracious ruling presence. Let's take the bread. The bread is a symbol of God's provision and his fellowship with his people. Jesus is the bread of life. God's greatest provision for his people, his deepest fellowship with them. The incense. The incense stands for prayer. Prayer is the response of people to God. Simply put, Jesus is our fragrant, pleasing, and perfect response to the Father. He represents us to the Father. He is the, our fragrant offering to the Father. And so it goes. Item after item of furniture representing what we have in Christ, pointing us forward to Christ. The old covenant was a shadow. It was a glorious shadow, but it was a shadow. The new covenant in the blood of Christ is the real thing in the here and now. 
It's the true glory. What are we saying? Where the old covenant arrangements were ineffective, external, anticipatory, the new covenant is effective, it's internal, it's real in the here and now. Take a deep breath. What does all of that mean for our guilt? Two things from verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Very briefly, the new covenant in the blood of Christ means these two things. A pure conscience and a new purpose. A pure conscience and a new purpose. When we think of what Christ has done, and we've been, we've been thinking about this the whole way through, when we think of what he's done, it should very quickly remind us just how powerless and pathetic our guilt relief strategies are. As we've seen over and over again, they only deal with the symptoms, like guilt feelings, or the shame and embarrassment of getting caught. So much of our guilt relief, as we've been saying, is just about saving face. It's about proving my worth to others. I'm not actually as bad as this thing makes me look. It's about justifying myself in their eyes, in the eyes of others. It doesn't deal with the disease. It doesn't deal with our offense against God, who was the one who decides right from wrong in the first place. And as we said, this unresolvable guilt is massively destructive force in our lives. Guilt can consume an individual for his whole life, like Albert Speer. Guilt can destroy our most important relationships, rob us of our deepest passions, like Clive White. Guilt can poison whole societies, like ours. So at every level, we are trapped by the guilt, and no amount of therapy or penance can change that. But Christ can. Why? We've said it. His blood is of infinite value. His blood is enough. His blood exposes the deepest of evils. That's what the cross is. It's showing us the reality of our sin. It exposes the deepest of evils. So that justice is served. Because justice catches up with every single one of us. It's either, we're either going to meet it at the cross, but if we turn that down, we meet it on the day of judgment. Judgment is secure. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. By the blood of the same cross, mercy is also secure. And this is not cheap mercy. Just make no mistake about it. This is not cheap mercy. It may be free, but it's not cheap. It cost Jesus the unbroken love of his Father. That eternal bond of love, of sheer bliss that he enjoyed, was broken so that he could extend us his mercy, so that he could win us this mercy. It cost him his blood. Free, but not cheap. And so now in him, as we think about justice and mercy, the justice and the mercy that the cross secures, we have new motives for healing and change. We have a true and infinitely powerful motive to forgive others. 
We have a true and infinitely powerful motive to work to right the wrongs of the past. Not the false motive of a penance we can never pay, but the true motive of a grace we can never earn. And again, I hope you see the chasm between those two things. What we're saying is this, God's justice and mercy for us, the justice and mercy he extends us, transforms us into agents of justice and mercy for each other. Do you see how powerful it is? It even deals with the problem of guilt. Let's get a little personal. If you're carrying a burden of guilt this morning, or perhaps a burden of bitterness for something that someone else has done to you, whatever it is you've done, whatever it is this other person has done to you, the blood of Christ is enough. It's enough. To say, I can't be forgiven for this. This this thing that I've done, it's too much. To say that is to cheapen his blood. To trample on his sacrifice. We have no right to say it. We dare not say it. The blood of Christ is enough. It alone can purify your conscience. It alone can empower you to forgive others. It can purify our conscience as a people as a people, and set us on the road to healing and recovery. And that leads me to purpose. Purity of conscience has a purpose. A pure conscience is not only about our mental health, as wonderful a benefit as that is. So what is it about? If it's not just about mental health, what is it about? Verse 14 again, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify your conscience from dead works for what purpose? For what purpose? To serve the living God. A pure conscience enables us to worship the living God freely. We are freed from our dead works. We are freed for the living God. We're free for worship. And remember, worship is all of life. It's not two hours on a Sunday. It's all of life. More than any other relationship, guilt poisons our relationship with God. Our guilt, our dead works, our sinful thoughts and words and deeds mean that our consciences condemn us and we are separated from our Father. But in Christ, we are purified from all of that. We are set free to worship the living God. In closing, I just want to suggest two ways we can do that, and they're very much in keeping with our theme this morning, with what we've been thinking about. We can worship God in these two ways. We can worship God as victims, and we can worship God as perpetrators. And what we all have to remember is that all of us are both, just at different times of the day. As a victim, when you realize everything God has done to free you from your guilt, you will find it increasingly difficult to bind others to their guilt. You have been freely forgiven. Freely. You will begin to freely forgive. This is so important that our Lord Jesus built it into the Lord's Prayer. 
the manifesto of the faith. Father, forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. When you grasp God's forgiveness for you, how it cost you nothing, but it cost him everything, you will forgive others. And when you do, it's an act of worship. We can worship God as victims. We can also worship God as perpetrators. When you enjoy the freedom, this freedom of worship that we've been speaking about, worshiping God with a clear conscience, you are actually free to admit your wrongdoing and to work to set it right. You don't have to fear that by admitting your guilt, you'll be condemned because Christ has already borne that for you. You don't have to worry about losing face or bearing the shame. Christ bore the shame for you. He was crucified outside of the city, naked, in humiliation, in his own filth. He bore the shame for you outside the city so that you are now inside, secure in his love. If Christ is for you, who can be against you? You are free. And because your freedom came at such a high price, with such unconditional love, it is precious. And you will want to use it well by loving God and loving others. Especially those you have wronged. Especially those you have wronged. We can worship God as victims. We can worship God as perpetrators, remembering all of us are both, just at different times of the day. What that means is twice as many opportunities to worship the living God. Let's worship him now in prayer. Won't you join me? Father, we take our guilt seriously because you take it so seriously. We repent of our useless external attempts to deal with that guilt. We thank you that in Christ our purification is once for all and forever. Thank you for opening the way for us to be free from our dead works and to worship you. Please help us, Father. Help us to forgive others as freely as we've been forgiven. Please help us to worship you by making right that which is wrong in our own lives and in the world around us. The blood of Jesus opened the way for these prayers to come to you as a fragrant offering. Let us never forget it. In his name we pray. Amen.